0: Welcome back to A Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise And I'm Annie. And you might notice that I do not have my soft, sultry voice. (laughs) Some of you have said that you enjoy. I am not bringing that to the table today because the Rona has come for me round two.
1: And poor Elise has been such a trooper. To everyone listening, I did try and take over this episode again to give her some rest, but she is determined to bring the best episode to everyone. I'm excited, but I feel so horrible right now even seeing her. We're um, not in person. We're doing the little FaceTime camera, but she's looking rough, but she's bringing us another case, so.
0: I appreciate your honesty. Yeah, puffy would be an understatement. (laughs) I can't really see my eyes anymore because my sinuses are so swollen. But I know this is such a first world problem, but my biggest complaint this morning is for some reason I've not lost taste or smell, which is great. I'm happy about that. But like the first time that I got COVID, I have a constant metallic taste in my mouth. But for some reason, coffee in particular, I took my first sip yesterday and it tasted like I was drinking warm blood. That's
1: very savage. I feel like that first cup of coffee is such a moment of peace and it just throws your whole day off if you don't get that.
0: Yeah. And especially I wanted, I mean, let's be honest, I'm addicted to caffeine. And so... I already had a headache, wanted to make sure I didn't get more of a headache by not having caffeine. So I am drinking a lot of tea to make up for it because I might be doing a true crime podcast, but I'm not a vampire and I cannot drink warm, bloody coffee.
1: No. And right now it's so cute. You're in this big, fluffy robe, headphones on, cup of tea handy.
0: So excuse me why I try to get through this episode with a cough and a sniffle in between. Normally we would cover true crime current events, but I think today we're going to just go right into the case before my voice gives out on me completely.
1: Let's do it.
0: I first heard about today's case by watching one of my favorite YouTubers, Bailey Sarian. I know I've told Annie a lot about her. Oh, yes. I'm a super fan. She covered this case in her murder mystery and makeup series, which if you haven't checked it out, you guys, I will absolutely link her channel in our show notes. It's an amazing series for crime lovers or just makeup lovers where she does her makeup while she's telling a true crime case. I don't know how she does it. Talk but I would- talent. Right. I mean, I'm sitting here, like you said, in my robe with my tea and and barely making it through. And she's doing a full face of makeup. I don't know how she does it, but I would suggest watching her series on YouTube. And she also just started a dark history podcast that is really interesting as well. But what caught my attention about this case in particular was that she said that cosmetics were being used to poison a lot of men during the 1600s. And maybe many of our listeners don't know this about me, but I spent most of my adult life working as a makeup artist and a makeup educator. So immediately I was intrigued.
1: I remember back in, was it February, we we got together at that restaurant because we were kind of doing our first introductions, talking about the podcast, and you brought up how badly that you wanted to do this case. And I've never heard of this.
0: I'm so excited.
1: Yes, I'm so excited, too, because it kind of aligns with your history and your background. I know you're a big makeup gal. You've done my makeup and you've done an amazing job. So I'm curious how makeup ties into a murder, but I'm ready for it.
0: Well, research in this case led me down some wild historical searches. And I got to say, having COVID brain fog and going on some of these searches was quite a wild ride. (laughs) But I'm going to do my best to stay on topic. But before I begin, I need to be clear that there is a lot of different folklore and variations of the story surrounding this case. I did my best to compile information using multiple sources and just kind of taking the parts that overlapped on multiple sources. But since today we are traveling back to the 1600s, you can imagine I couldn't really fact check it with anyone.
1: No, it's hard enough to get stuff from the 70s and 80s, let alone the 1600s. Like, what were they writing their articles on? Like a scribe?
0: (laughs) Right. There's not, I can't pull up the newspaper articles from back then. So here's what we know Juliana Tafana. And her crew were suspected of killing, are you ready for it, Annie? I don't know. Over 600 men.
1: Whoa. six. Yeah. So he's a serial killer.
0: Yeah. In fact, she would be the most prolific female serial killer in recorded history.
1: And the most unknown. Like, I've never heard about her.
0: All right. Well, let's set the scene. We're going to go back to the 1600s in Europe. We're headed into the Age of Enlightenment, a time where philosophers in Europe were questioning traditional authority you know, kind of questioning all those royals and what they've been up to for years, creating numerous inventions, scientific discoveries, and new laws, which all sound great, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, arguably all wonderful things. But if you're a woman, well, not much has changed in your favor. As a woman in the 17th century, let's just say you're married, as most of them were, and you're unhappy in your marriage, which Again, many were because women were treated as a business transaction, something to be traded off by their father for more wealth, status, privilege, whatever the case. But if you were unhappy in that arranged marriage, you were kind of shit out of luck.
1: And weren't they doing this whenever they, they were young, right? The girls were very young and they got like a cow or a chicken in the yes. transaction piece you were talking about.
0: <laughs> well, hopefully a little more than cow or chicken. <laughs> but yes, dowries were still a thing. But in my reading, it seemed like many of the wealthy and aristocratic families married their female children off as early as 12 years old. Wow. And I hate to use this term, but even in the lower class, their words, not mine, Mm -hmm. most marriages were still arranged, but many of the women were married off in their late teens, early 20s. In today's world, if you're in an abusive relationship or unhappy for any reason, you can file for divorce. You don't need your husband's approval. You don't need your father's approval. You can go ahead and do it on your own. Heck, we know like there's the sad statistic that, sorry, Annie, because you are married, but the statistic that about half of U.S. marriages will end in divorce. Yep. But back then, divorce was not even an option. You could have your marriage annulled, but there was really strict criteria for getting an annulment. You could try to prove that you were forced into the marriage before the age of consent, and that it was not consummated. But given the age of consent during this time was 12 for no a girl and way. 14 for a boy. Babies. that Absolute babies. I don't even know. Sorry, listeners, but I don't even know if I had my period at that age, no. much less should be making adult choices like being a wife. No,
1: you're forcing them to grow up way too fast. 12-year-olds should be playing in fields of flowers and having you know, basic chores, but not having to be a wife or a husband even at 14, that is insane. But it was common back that then, you're saying.
0: That was the age of consent, at least. And usually the wealthier family was the earlier off you got married. So if you could not prove that you were forced into a marriage before the age of consent and that you never consummated it and that you never, once you reach legal age of consent, agreed to it in any way, verbal, written, or just by giving your hubby a hug on the streets, (laughs) you were not allowed to get an annulment. Wow.
1: The odds were not in our favors, ladies.
0: No, absolutely not. You could also seek something called legal separation from bed and table, which quite frankly, those are the last two things I want to be separated from right now, why I have COVID. But basically what that meant is that your marriage bond would still be intact, but it wouldn't uh, affect your inheritance or the legitimacy of your children. You could never remarry, so you were still legally married, but you were allowed to live separately from your partner.
1: Interesting. So even though you get married at 12 years old, and let's say this does happen for you and you get to get away from your husband, you still can never remarry. So your life at that point, you're still considered to be with this man. That's interesting to me. Hmm. Yeah, like that. and
0: keep in mind, adultery has some pretty high consequences at this time. In order to get this legal separation from bed and table, which they really got to work on that name, you had to prove adultery or cruelty. Now, unlike men, women during this time would have to prove both situations were occurring, since women were supposed to really turn a blind eye to their husband's wandering eye. And I was disgusted to find out that women who were seeking this legal separation had to prove not only were they being abused, but that the abuse was life-threatening. Because husbands, at this time, had a legal right to chastise and physically reprimand their wife. Wow.
1: I hate everything about this.
0: Yeah. So, obviously, it was quite hard to acquire this type of separation, especially when the people that you're filing the appeal to most likely were all men it's incredibly hard to acquire this type of separation. And I found an article by Amanda Foreman for the Smithsonian magazine that said when a divorce law was finally enacted in 1857, which is 200 years Mm -hmm. after what we're talking about and the floodgates were open. the number of divorces in English history stood at a mere 324. That's it? That is it. So that just kind of goes to show how hard these separations were to obtain. Basically impossible.
1: Can you imagine going and trying to get your marriage annulled, and if you don't get it annulled, going back home to your husband?
0: I don't think that probably would fare very well. As you can imagine, in the 1600s, there was plenty of unhappy, pissed-off women who were stuck in loveless and abusive marriages. Without legal ways to separate from their husbands, some may have turned to some other desperate measures. And this is where Julia Tofana comes into the picture. Do we like Julia, or
1: is she a bad girl?
0: TBD. Ooh. We don't know exactly when Julia Tofana was born, but it's believed she was born in Palermo, Italy. And you guys, I never took Italian, so bear with me on these names. Some historians think that she may have been the daughter of Tofania di... Adamo.
1: Wow, what a name. They sound like royalty kind of.
0: Beautiful name, but I had to hear the pronunciation quite a few times and I still am not sure if I'm getting it right, which I will 100% blame on my ear infection. So this is a little confusing because they don't have the same name, right? But during this time, it was actually quite common for women to take the first name of their mother as their last name until they were married. I didn't know that. So why is any of this important? Well, Tofana di Adamo was executed in July of 1633 after being suspected of poisoning her husband with arsenic. Oh. As you will see, this would be a mother-like-daughter situation, which would later become a grandmother-like-daughter-like-granddaughter situation, because all the women in this family basically became professional poisoners. We all
1: have those uh, family traditions, like mine is drinking too much at Christmas and having a great time, (laughs) and they're just poisoning people.
0: Speaking of which, Julia did get married, but after his death, which now in hindsight probably should have been looked into, moved with her daughter Geronima Spana to Rome. During this time, apothecaries are booming. People are seeking out perfumes, cosmetics, medical remedies that they weren't able to get before this. The makeup artist in me needs to geek out here a little bit and give you a history about how two specific ingredients were widely used at this time in cosmetics: belladonna which you might have heard before, is an extract made from the nightshade berries. It was mixed with water to create eye drops that would dilute the pupils. Now, this apparently would give women a look of soft, seductive eyes. If you've ever read a romance novel and they're like, and his eyes grew dark with desire, that was the look they were going for.
1: That's really cool. And today we use uh, Lumify. It's always about the eyes.
0: Right? But Belladonna... Eye drops actually dilated your pupils so it made the colored part of your eye almost invisible so they would just have these dark kind of mysterious looking eyes belladonna is wildly toxic only one part of belladonna is necessary per 130,000 parts per water in order to dilate the pupils that's risky yeah that's an understatement one part per 130,000 thousand parts of water this would cause immediate blurred vision so they're willingly doing this to their eyes to get that sultry look apparently so if they did this for an extended period of time they could lose their eyesight altogether but you know beauty is pain and we women do some crazy things in the name of beauty the other product i need to talk about is lead Lead was often used in cosmetics to whiten skin. At the time, the lighter your skin was, the more beautiful. Please do not come for me. This is the bullshit of that time period. I'm not saying I'm agreeing with any of this. But women would use a white paint made of lead and vinegar to create the appearance of white skin. Mm. I think the most commonly discussed use of lead in makeup was by Queen Elizabeth I, who used this mixture to cover her smallpox scars. Unfortunately, we know that lead is uh, not a good thing to be putting on your face. We don't even allow it in paint on our walls, much less our makeup anymore, because over time this mixture would cause skin discoloration, hair loss, oh, and your teeth would rot and fall out. Sexy.
1: Whoa, I'm getting some very vivid images of just like this rotting woman who's like, I'm beautiful, right? And everyone's like, uh sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs>
0: It's pretty creepy because the longer you use lead makeup, it was kind of this awful chicken before the egg situation because the longer that you used it, you would have to use more of it to cover the damage that the lead makeup was doing to your skin. But they never
1: put two and two together to realize that lead was the common denominator.
0: Well, at some point they must have, but there is kind of this. Folklore around Queen Elizabeth that said she died with an inch of makeup on her skin. Who knows if that's true, but it would actually make sense because at the time of her death, now I'm really going on a tangent, but they also used mercury and stuff like that in their lipsticks. It was awful. So at the time of her death, she had basically taken off quite a few layers of her skin and had to use the makeup to cover it. So maybe she did have an inch Mm -hmm. of makeup on her. Who knows? We obviously know a lot better now. At the time, just as they do now though, women went to extreme measures in an effort to reach this standard of beauty for the time. Bella, Donna, and lead were commonly used ingredients for many different cosmetic purposes like we talked about. But mixed with arsenic, they created the poison aqua tifana. If you watch Bailey Sarian's video, you will understand why I have the sudden urge to whisper aqua tifan. But if you haven't, that would just be creepy, so I will just call it aqua a name.
1: <laughs> Aqua
0: reminds me of Aquafina water bottles. It's unclear if Julia came up with this mixture herself, or if perhaps the secret recipe was passed down by her mother before her execution. But either way, it is Julia who will go down in history as its maker and its biggest seller. Aqua was, for that time period at least, the perfect poison because of its ingredients being so commonly used. Julia was able to package it up in an inconspicuous bottle and it could be placed amongst the lady's other cosmetics and perfumes without anyone being the wiser. Julia began selling her potion to women seeking escape from their husbands. Many people believed she worked on a referral-only basis. Of course, she still sold as her front, basically, the normal apothecary, cosmetics, all of those good things. But no one could accidentally pick up this bottle and be like, I want to buy this. No, I don't think this was sitting on the shelf by the cold creams, (laughs) but it was something that was cleverly disguised, and I'll go into that a little later of how she would disguise it. She had as many as six women in her poison ring that would basically vet the woman's story of abuse, make sure that the woman accusing her husband was credible and could be trusted to keep their secret. In some ways, making her a hero to these abused women who couldn't legally leave their husbands. And that's where your question of, is she a good guy or bad guy? You kind of have to decide for yourself. However, I think it'd be an injustice to not also include that at this period of history, a lot of women were killing off their husbands and poison was referred to as inheritance powder. Because they didn't get the money if their husband was still around. And once the husband was gone, they could remarry who they chose with all their wealth and inheritance still intact. So for the sake of this story, I'm going to believe that Juliana was indeed trying to help women get away from their abusers.
1: Yeah, I totally think so, too. I think she had good intentions. We're all out here saying we condone anyone killing anyone. But I think whenever you hear about the background, the time period, the age of the women getting married off, it is important to note that she probably was just trying to help them. And I like that she had the group of women to vet out the story to make sure that, okay, they're not just coming in here. Maybe they're like little spies looking in the windows. It,
0: it kind of seemed like that. Like this was, especially for the time, quite an organized secret mm-hmm. ring. They had their little mob of poisoners. So how did Aqua Tifana work? Well, the story goes that a woman would come to Julia's shop requesting mana of St. Nicholas, a commonly used healing oil at the time of saint nicholas it has a pretty incredible history in and of itself does saint nicholas ring a bell at all annie the
1: christmas
0: presents we are literally talking about the first santa claus he is what we credit santa claus to be although we've added a couple hundred pounds and a big bowl of jelly and and a big white beard and yeah a lot of reindeer yeah So this is the first Santa Claus. He was known for giving anonymous gifts and performing miracles and goodwill services all over. But when he died in 346 AD, his body was buried. It was said that his tomb gave off this really sweet smelling odor. And shortly after, a mysterious liquid would weep from the tomb. Legend has it that this liquid would cure anyone who came in contact with it. So, it was mixed with holy water and sold as a cure-all potion for people. Wow,
1: that's super cool.
0: Fun fact, this actually has some legitimacy because in 1953, they had the remains moved during the restoration of the basilica. And when they opened his tomb, his bones indeed were in a pool of shallow liquid. When they returned his body in 1957, they continued to weep this mana.
1: That's super cool. Maybe he was magical.
0: I don't know if he cured anything. There's a lot of speculation about if this is just water that's somehow being seeped into his tomb or not. But I've never heard of a body giving off a fragrant, sweet-smelling odor Mm-mm. after it dies. So who knows? Maybe St. Nick is is magical, like you said. However, Julie was not selling this tomb oil. She was using its popularity as a cover for what was really inside her bottles, labeled as "Mana of St. Nicholas, Aqua Aquatifana. With Julia's guidance, women would take this potion home with them, cleverly disguised as just another cosmetic thing a lady had on her nightstand. And I don't know about your vanity, but I am picturing the amount of skincare and makeup products I've displayed on mine. And my imaginary boyfriend, if he were to walk into my room, there is no way without reading all the labels, he would know what any of them did.
1: My husband gets very overwhelmed looking at all the stuff I put on my face. And yeah, sometimes he does kind of dive in. He's like, can I try that on my face? Like, is it moisturizing? I'm like, come here, give me your face with all my little potions. She's kind of like a little marketer. I'm sure this was a really pretty little bottle that just blended right in. Little did these husbands know there's something bad in there.
0: There is a portrait of one of these bottles, actually, that was done. Obviously, they didn't have photographs at the time. And it almost looks like you would expect a bottle of holy water to look. Really, you're not going to suspect that a bottle that looks like it's used maybe for cosmetic or religious purposes and has something to do with Santa Claus is really poison. They would then just put a drop into their hubby's food or drink. Remember, it's odorless, it's tasteless, so he would have no idea his food had been poisoned. And the first choice would give you like flu-like symptoms, kind of like mm-hmm. I'm feeling right now, cough, runny nose, stomach ache. But that is when her plan would really go up a gear. She instructed the woman at this point to call the doctor, playing the doting wife card to her advantage. Who would suspect the wife was the cause of the symptoms that she is calling the doctor for? So in doctor comes, oh, it's just a cold. Probably give you a little tincture that was popular at the time. That's really smart. They had it all planned out
1: from the beginning to the end.
0: Oh, very smart. Because by the third dose, hubby is feeling some type of way. He is vomiting, has severe diarrhea, and obviously becoming dehydrated because of those two, and has an unexplainable burning sensation in his stomach. But it was only the fourth dose that would kill him. So he was suffering for quite a bit. Yeah, it was a very slow-acting poison. It would seem to doctors that her husband had a progressive disease that slowly took his life. But there was another purpose for this being slow-acting. Not only did it give the wife kind of an alibi— But during this time before dose and death, they were instructed to play their part as a worried wife, helping their husband put their financial affairs together just in case and making sure that he was able to repent his sins to a priest. Now, at the time, religious practice said that that was the only way that you could guarantee your access to heaven was to repent before your death. So not only did she not have to worry about her husband beating on her or his soul being damned (laughs) to hell. So like we don't care, but we kind of care about the soul
1: portion. Women, I mean, I'd be pacing. I wonder if any of them ever got cold feet like halfway through on drop number two.
0: Yes, and we will get into that actually because you are you sure you don't know this case, Annie?
1: I don't. I'm just thinking from my perspective. Of course, Derek Spencer's listening. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Hold up, hold up.
0: <laughs> he's going to be going through your medicine cabinet later. <laughs> Anything Santa Claus? He's just throwing out immediately. So, like it said. It was kind of this win-win. They had time to get their financials in order. They had time to make sure that their husband was going to heaven. After the husband's death, just to really seal their innocence in the eyes of the public, they were instructed to request a post-mortem examination. Of course, the performing doctor would find nothing that would raise suspicion, and on with her life she would go, inheritance intact, and free to marry whoever she chose. This kind of
1: reminds me of that Dixie Chick
0: song. Earl had to die? the two
1: get together and they concoct this plan, Wanda and what's the other one's name?
0: Gosh, I don't remember.
1: Marianne. And
0: they're just the chicks now. Yeah, it's kind of reminded me of that. All right, well, we'll call the husband (laughs) Earl from here on out. Fortunately, or unfortunately, I guess depending on what version of the story you're going with, that Julia was a hero saving women from abusive husbands, or she's just in fact a mass murderer getting women to do her bidding for her, the poison ring was eventually found out. because like you guessed a woman finally snitched in the 1650s one of her clients got cold feet oh no she had put the poison in her husband's soup but when he goes to take that first bite and she immediately is overcome with regret and stops him from eating it now that would be a little suspicious oh, i would yeah. imagine especially with the growing popularity of poison at this time. He's going to be like, excuse me. Also, what
1: member of the murder mob did not do their due diligence and make sure that she was fully committed? That's who I blame.
0: Well, you're going to find that part out, too. This obviously was more than a little suspicious to her husband, who pressed his wife for the truth, probably with some force that was legally allowed to him at the time, and she cracked. She told the truth that she had put the poison in his soup and also told him where she got that poison. He turned his wife and her accomplices over to the papal authorities. She named Giovanna de Grandes as who she purchased the poison from. And on January 31st, 1659, the poison dealer Giovanna de Grandes was arrested. And she sang like a canary and snitched on the entire operation. They had gone on for years doing this. And finally, just one person's cold feet got them all found out. Now, this is where the story gets a little muddy. There's a ton of different stories around Julia's fate, but we have record of her daughter Jeronima's fate. Remember, she had become very active in her mother's deadly business. In fact, most people credit her with running the operational side of things at this point in her capture. She was arrested on the 2nd of February, 1950, not 1959, <laughs> oh, 1659. Apparently she is a time traveler. <laughs> She was arrested on the 2nd of February, 1659. She denied all accusations for months, which you gotta realize they were allowed to beat and torture her. So she is going down on this ship. And she refused to confess even to a priest. And another little odd religious fact, during this time, you could not execute someone by law until they had confessed to a priest.
1: That is interesting. I wonder why. Was it back to like the soul portion, going to heaven?
0: I'm not sure. Sure. It didn't really say, but I would imagine like they're washing their hands of the sin of the execution because they're putting her soul in God's hands. It would be my guess. But after months of torture and interrogations, even having her accomplices and clients confront her publicly in the courtroom, she finally confessed on June 20th. In her statement of guilt, she is quoted as saying, I've given this liquid to more people than I've got hairs on my head. I don't know about you, but I've got a few hairs on my head (laughs) and it's more than 600, I think. Jeronima Espana and a few of her associates were executed by hanging on July 5, 1659. Over 40 of lower-class customers were executed or exiled from the country, but women of the upper class were either given house arrest or escaped punishment altogether by getting papal immunity for their confession. Of course, the immunity deal was only given to ladies of a certain status. So what about the mama? Remember, Julia, the one that kind of started all of this. There are so many different stories about how she could have died from seeking asylum in a convent where she partnered with the nuns and a priest to continue selling aqua to to women in need to a story about her getting found out, executed and her body being thrown over the wall of that same convent. It's pretty unclear what exactly happened, but some historians and tons of folklore credit Julia, her daughter, and their poison ring to be responsible for killing over 600 men, making her, as I said before, the most prolific female serial killer in history. That was a story. Well, there's more. Obviously, you're having quite a reaction to finding out about 600 males being killed. Can you imagine the males in Europe at the time? This was spreading around like gossip in a salon. The story of this female-operated poison ring would spread throughout Europe. In fact, over a hundred years after Geronima's execution, Mozart, you know him, the famous composer, was writing his final requiem and was quoted as saying, I feel definitely that I will not last much longer. I am sure that I have been poisoned. I cannot rid myself of this idea. Someone has given me aqua and calculated the precise time of my death. Mozart's actual cause of death was never determined, but it just goes to show how prevalent this story became throughout the years since over 100 years after her execution, Mozart is sitting there paranoid that someone had used this poison against him.
1: It almost makes me think that she continued doing this, and she had more women come work underneath her, and it kept going, even though the general public was probably a little bit relieved. Okay, this is done. We're good. We can move on. We can... Look at that little Santa Claus, that little vial, and not be worried about it. But Mozart into the story. Huh. Poor guy.
0: It's very interesting. So that, my friend, is the story of Aqua the poison suspected of killing hundreds of men and its creator, Julia. It's a weird case for me to have covered because, like you said at the beginning, is she good? Is she bad? I don't know whether to have the same disdain for Julia as I would for other murderers. Not because she's a woman, but because of the time period she lived in. If she was helping other women escape their abuser in the only way that was really afforded to them at the time, then is she a hero? Or do we look at her like someone like Ted Bundy or BTK with the same kind of assumption that they're just evil incarnate? I don't know, but we want you to weigh in on this case. What do you think of Julia? Murderer, hero? Or perhaps she's in a category all of her own. Let us know your thoughts on our Instagram at Case of the Sunday Scaries. And thank you for listening. Thanks for putting up with my coughing, my (laughs) hoarse voice. And as for me, I am off to bed because I'm so tired. But we will be back next Sunday with a new case for you. Until then.